News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you're a glass half full person, then you can probably cite one or two things from the pandemic that are decent and worth keeping, right? Maybe it's the ease of liquor delivery. People certainly like that. Or the proliferation of online retail that you can just like order online, pick up at the store when you feel like it. Yeah, there's some good stuff there. For me, one of the things I really like is the ease with which you can talk to your doctor. You don't need to go into the actual doctor's office now. I've had a couple of doctor's appointments and it's all been done done over the phone, super efficient, very fast, not a problem. I think virtual doctor's appointments have become pretty popular. You've got video appointments, phone consultations, and sometimes it's like right on time and just a matter of minutes after you make the request, right? So there is some good stuff there. Well, Catherine Wang is the clinical vice president at the University Health Network in Toronto, system professor at University of Toronto. And she's written a fascinating commentary about whether or not virtual care is here to stay. And she joins us this morning to share those thoughts. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Do you think it is here to stay? I definitely do, and I'd like to see that it's here to stay and even pushed further. Um, You know, it's been 10 years in the making around virtual care being delivered and offered to patients, and it's been a real challenge until the pandemic uh, to have it as mainstay uh, opportunity for, for delivery of care. And so this pandemic, as you've commented, has really changed the situation for all of us. Um, We couldn't have patients coming to the hospital, and so it really allowed us to push virtual care um, to the forefront, and I think it's it's definitely here to stay. You you said it was 10 years in the making. I think that's so true because we sure talked about it a lot before the pandemic, but for some reason it didn't seem to become widespread. Why was that? Yeah, there's a number of barriers, and now that you look back at it, they almost seem like excuses, Yeah, Um, but they were pretty significant. I mean, so first and foremost, Um, from a financial perspective, uh, physicians weren't able to bill for virtual care visits. And so that right in itself is is a huge barrier to really getting adoption. Um, Secondly, I think there was this perception that patients, you know, really wanted to see their doctor in person, to have the conversation in person and to be touched and physically examined. Um, And I don't think that uh, patients necessarily see it that way anymore. Um, And then thirdly, I think for physicians, it was just more convenient to have patients come in. All of our workflows are built around making the physician the most uh, efficient when you have a clinic visit. And so having it done on virtual um, does present some challenges because you have to replicate those processes in a virtual way. And so for all those reasons, I think it's just been a very difficult thing to adopt. But um, the silver lining in this pandemic has really forced us to, to push that boundary and to knock down those perceived barriers. Well, now, what does the medical community think of this? Like, are doctors comfortable doing this, do you think? I think it's split right now. So I think some physicians really love it. Um, but I don't think we're at a point where it's truly sustainable. And so, as I mentioned, if you think about what is involved when you go in for a clinic visit in a hospital, there's someone there who's getting your consent for treatment, you're filling out forms, you're often seeing a nurse or another clinical provider before you see the physician. And so all of those components is very difficult to replicate in a virtual world that makes it efficient for physicians. And so until we really build virtual care to be as efficient as an in-person clinic visit, it'll be difficult to get widespread adoption on an ongoing basis. And I think that is the challenge that's before us. 
um, we have a huge way to go in terms of really creating sustainable processes and having patients feeling comfortable accessing their care this way. If you think about it, um, having access to devices, having digital literacy, having access to Wi-Fi, quite often those are from positions of privilege. And so if we want to design something that's universally accessible to all patients, we need to think about how do we create enablers for everyone to be able to access virtual care. So you mentioned something there I thought was interesting where you said that an inpatient visit is more efficient. In what way? Because I have found the the phone way to be way more efficient because there's no chit chat, there's no wasting time. It's just let's get right to this and here's why I'm calling. Yes. I mean, I think for the patient, it definitely is more efficient, but I think a lot of physicians will say it's difficult for them because they don't have the same access to the information that they would have had in an in-person visit because the clinical team is there providing care around the patient. You don't necessarily see what's happening in the background to prepare the physician for that uh, consultation with the patient. And so for physicians, it's not necessarily the easiest way um, right now to deliver care. They often have to figure out how they're going to get all the information they need to prepare for that uh, virtual visit. Um, And so that's why I don't think it's widespread adoption that everyone wants to sign up for this right now forevermore. Um, I think people are doing it uh, because of the pandemic. Um, But if we don't build in those processes and technology enablers, I think we'll end up sliding back, uh, unfortunately, um, from where we are today. Right. So I guess what you're saying is I can understand that, that for doctors, it's important to sometimes see somebody in person, right? To check the symptoms, see what's going on. Perhaps they're not, the patient is not, you know, they're missing something that only a doctor can see visually. For sure. And so we're, I'm not suggesting that virtual care is the way to deliver care for every single situation. I think it has to be an appropriate time. Um, and so brief visits that don't necessarily need physical exams, follow-up visits, those are wonderful ways to have uh, done virtually. Um, but there will always be situations where the patient needs to come in. It's, it's not that different from banking where you would sometimes go to your teller because you need to do something that's way more transactional with the bank versus um, going to an ATM machine. Right. That's a great analogy for that. All right, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. That's Catherine Wang, Clinical Vice President at the University Health Network and Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto, talking about virtual doctor's appointments. I've loved them during the pandemic, right? I had a couple, just like two of them, but they just were both so efficient and so fast and just right on time. And it was just so great that I thought, man, I can never go back to doing this the other way. But Catherine made some great points there that for the doctor and even for some patients that face-to-face is really important, but how do you decide? So is that going to stay? It's a good question for me to ask you at this point. Like, what do you prefer? Do you prefer going in to the doctor, talking to the doctor face-to-face, making sure the doctor understands what ails you? Or do you think, nah, I could deal with this on the phone or a virtual appointment. That is fine by me. You email me. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. And I would be so curious as to how doctors feel about this because once again, Catherine, great point that for some doctors, it just might not be the way they like to do business, that you may see us go backwards in this regard once this whole pandemic is over. Like, what would you prefer your doctor's office to do? Let me know. Have your say. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, we talked a lot at the beginning of the pandemic about the Government of Canada's COVID-19 tracing app. And despite all that, the commercials, the attention, the discussion about it, it's actually been pretty underwhelming. Global News investigative journalist Brian Hill has dug into the issue on this with the app. The the reason why it never really got off the ground. He's got a new piece on the website, globalnews.ca, this morning. He joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. So why did this not really take off? Um. Well, I, I mean, I think the, 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 one of the reasons we've heard from folks why they're not using it is that they don't feel it's of any use. Um, that's probably the thing we've heard most uh, often from people. Um, and I think there are reasons for that. People had fears about privacy, which is, you know, the uptake was slow and, and all of that. But then once it got going, um, people just weren't receiving notifications. Um, so they just didn't really think it had much use. And we're now getting some new data on that that shows this is uh, this is the case. Right. It shows that 96% of people who tested positive for COVID-19 weren't using the app properly. So even if you did come across somebody and had the app, you maybe you didn't even know it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and so this is the thing. Like, the, I think the government messaging on this was download the app and you're good to go. And unfortunately, that's not all of it. That's not the full story. Um, The app only really functions if people who test positive for COVID-19 then use the app to upload that that, that, uh, diagnosis so that a phone can warn people nearby. Um, And that's what we're finding people aren't doing. Just 20,000 of roughly 535,000 people who've tested positive since the app was launched have done that. And so no one's phone is warning anybody near them of uh, that, that potential exposure. And in BC, uh, it's, it's, it's even worse because the government in BC has not adopted the app, so nobody can use the app. Uh, so you're out of luck if you live in BC. Right. So I know the app was downloaded something like, what, six and a half million times. And that means that what you said only 20,000 people who actually tested positive put that information into the app? Correct. Yeah. And so that's about 3%. Uh, If you count BC and Alberta, which haven't actually adopted the app, if you count those statistics, it's less than 3% of people who've tested positive are are using the app to warn others of that potential exposure. And uh, so the the kind of fears that people had or the concerns that, well, maybe this app isn't working. Well, it's true because it's not working 97% of the time. Right. And what do you think that was like in your assessment? Was that a communications issue? Was it that people just didn't understand they have to input that information? Yeah, I think it's partly that a lot of the government messaging focused on download the app, download the app. The politicians, including Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, said download the app. It can help you. And there was very little messaging in terms of how you actually have to use it. Um, And I also think it's a little bit complicated for in the sense that there are multiple steps involved. Um, and so you've got to download the app, you've got to get your result, you've got to upload. It's not straightforward. It's not, it's, it's simple, but it's not the easiest thing in the world. Right. Is it still in use, Brian? It is. It is. And I mean, there are some people who would get notifications as a result of it. But like, like, like we've seen from this, this new recent data, it's just the, the, the effectiveness of this app is in very limited compared to what it could be if uh, folks were using it correctly. Right. Uh, Interesting times. Brian, thank you so much for your time on that. My pleasure.
That is Brian Hill. He's a global news investigative journalist. Uh, They did a deep dive into the stats surrounding the government of Canada's COVID-19 tracing app. You can read more about that story at globalnews.ca. But remember, we talked about this a lot. There was all this criticism of BC for not installing the app. And the the reason they gave is that they were finding it difficult. It wasn't compatible enough with local health authorities to be able to easily input information. But whatever. I feel like that's something we overcame so much. We could have overcome that too. But now it turns out that people weren't using it properly. 96% of the people who downloaded this thing were not using it properly. They didn't understand that if you have this app and you test positive, you then have to tell the app that you tested positive so that it can anonymously, uh, like, you know, let people know who were in your vicinity that somebody that they came into contact with, uh, and it wouldn't tell them who specifically, but somebody tested positive for COVID-19. And it turns out people did not do that step. But was it that Brent said 20,000 people did that? Uh, that may sound like a big number. It is not when you consider that the app was downloaded six and a half or so million times. Uh, a lot of work needed to be done on that one for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. I think it was a big wake-up call, right? Slap in the face to all of us a year ago when provincial health authorities told all bars that they were being shut down for St. Patrick's Day. I think it really brought home what kind of situation we were facing at that moment. Little did we know, though, what was going to happen over the ensuing months. We've had layoffs, restaurant closures. I mean, the industry has been, I would say, if not the most, along with tourism, the most heavily impacted by all of this. So let's talk about what St. Patrick's Day is going to look like at your local bar or pub today. Uh, Joining us now is Jeff Guinard, who's the Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Serving Licensees. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, so tell me, are there still lots of plans to, you know, have some kind of celebration of St. Patrick's Day today? Well, as you remember, as you pointed out last year, we, we didn't have St. Patrick's Day at all, right? I mean, uh, we were shut down completely right at the beginning of this virus. We're all experienced COVID operators right now. We've got a bunch of health protocols in place to keep people safe. Um, while we're celebrating Patrick's Day this year, though, it is a much smaller, more muted occasion than you have seen in the past. So, You'll likely see some green beer out there and you know, people wearing some green shirts, and we encourage patrons to do those kinds of things. Um, but liquor serving is going to end at 8 p.m. Uh, drinks are off the table by 9, and we're, we're sending everyone home by 9 o'clock unless we, we stay open for food only. Um, and it's, it's going to look and feel much more like a you know traditional kind of weekend afternoon or something like that, right? We're not going to be having the kind of celebrations you see in the past, right? And uh, we, we'd love to. We're, we're you know it's as big of a day for the bars and pubs as it is for our customers, but uh, unfortunately, that's just not a reality during this virus. And what was the communication like this time? I know that was a real problem with New Year's Eve, but what about this time? Oh yeah, New Year's Eve was terrible, right? We found out the day before, and we'd already ordered extra ingredients, a special menu, and it would uh, it really cost our industry a lot of money and a lot of frustration. Uh, this time, though, we've been working pretty closely with Dr. Henry and her team for the past uh, several months to get ahead of these things. So we found out uh, a week in advance, and that gave industry plenty of time to adapt and to uh, to make sure that we're doing exactly what Dr. Henry wants us to do and that we're, we're testing our protocols. We're not ordering extra ingredients. And also, I will say, one of the things that really helped this time is that order uh, or that change came in at the same time as um, a change to how many people you can gather with outside, right? You can now have... 10, you know, family members or your close bubble you can hang out with outside. People were asking questions. Does that mean I can have 10 people on a patio at a bar or a pub somewhere? The answer is no. 
uh, if you go to a pub or a restaurant, none of the rules have changed. I mean, the rules that applied a week ago apply now. Groups of no more than six, two meter distance, you know, no mingling, things like that. And uh, but but giving us a bit of notice so we can actually have time to adapt to clarify those questions has been immensely helpful. So we're, we're looking forward to a very safe uh, St. Patrick's Day this year. Okay, so will the closing early? Will that is that really going to be tough for the bottom line for bars? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, look, we we have Dr. Henry's back. Whatever she needs, we'll of course do. I mean, she's the one who's who's you know, trying to save the province and uh, stop the spread of the virus here. Uh, I personally don't think the virus only wakes up at 8 p.m. I mean, I don't. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense to me why we can't you know drink to nine or ten or eleven. I mean, but that's what she says she needs. That is fine. From our perspective, um, that is a massive hit financially to an industry that's already uh, about 70 or 80 percent of them are losing money every month, right? And a lot of our businesses have already closed. It's it's really tough out there. So if you if you have a favorite pub or bar, uh, please pop by today and uh, show them some love. Um, that'll help them be there for you after this pandemic is over. Uh, but yeah, the, the last couple of hours of the night are typically our most profitable, right? Um, even when we switched from liquor service hours to end at 10 p.m. generally, that had a really significant impact. It cut about 30% of most people's revenue. Right. That's going to be tough. I guess, I guess there was some good news this week or in the past week hearing that those liquor rules are going to be permanent, right? That there will be more delivery and just loosening up all those wholesale liquor rules. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our industry is, is pretty resilient and uh, people are going to do everything they can to adapt. Uh, but there's some policy things that have gotten in the way over the years, right? And just every province does liquor a little bit differently, as, as anybody who's traveled around Canada knows. And uh, we've we've still got some rules that need to change in BC, and, and our government's been pretty pretty responsive um, to our uh, our requests. And when they look at where where they can help, that's affordable for them. And and the change they made a few weeks ago to every um, every pub or bar access to wholesale pricing as opposed to the full retail, I think about a seventy million dollar. Uh, in, investment into our industry, right? And they did it because the, the hospitality sector was hit first, hit hardest, and will be among the last to recover from the impacts of COVID. So it's things like that definitely help. Um, and then giving us sufficient notice around an event like St. Patrick's Day so we can adapt our businesses and not spend any extra money that we're not going to be right. able to use, right? And on decorations or things like that and, and extra ingredients, it, it really does help. So we're looking forward to a safe day out there. It is, um, it's safe to dine out and drink out in BC. We've got the right protocols in place. Uh, and you can have fun if you follow the rules today. So looking past that too, Jeff, though, like looking ahead to the next couple of months, is the industry mm-hmm. getting ready for hopefully a return to more normal conditions? And what, what kind of support do you need in that transition? Yeah, I mean, we're like everybody, we're, you know, we're tired, right? And, yeah. uh, and we have some patrons who still think the rules don't apply to them, and we're, we're tired of having to babysit adults sometimes. Um, but we'll we'll keep doing it because it's our job, and it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, when we look, though, at Dr. Henry saying 10 people can now gather outside, we know that, you know, although the rules for our industry have not changed, uh, that does mean we're going in the right direction, and that's the first step, right? I mean, what we need to survive are... Uh, some of those public health protocols gradually lessening, right? Going from the general prohibition against drinking alcohol past 10 p.m., moving it back to, to midnight, for example, or normal service hours. Uh, we'd love to increase group sizes from uh, the six we're limited to uh, to eight, so we can get um, you know more families able to dine together. And, and and as the rules change, I expect over the next month or two, we'll see some of those things uh, lessen. Um, but that's Dr. Henry's call, and it, it depends on a much more calculated. Uh, are much more complicated calculation than, than I make right. on a daily basis, right? I mean, it's just looking at the virus and the variants and the vaccines. And right. Whatnot. So it's, it's a, yeah. But for today, then, you're saying, you know what? Stop by, show support, have a beer. You just can't stay past nine. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely right. And, and we know, unlike a year ago, when no one knew what this was, we've got the right protocols in place now. We've tested them out over the last year. Everyone is deeply experienced in how to keep you safe. It's safe to dine out and drink out in BC generally. Um, and we're looking forward to having a safe and fun day today. And if you follow the rules, um, you know, please come on and celebrate with us. Okay, sounds like a plan. Jeff, thank you. My pleasure. Have a happy St. Patrick's. This is Mornings with Simi. We're not going to miss a little fun on St. Patrick's Day, for sure, the opportunity to have some. We wanted to know, how did we get here? How did this become this day where people wear green and they, you know, have a beer and they want to have a good time? Where did all that come from? Well, joining us now to talk about how this tradition began and what a shamrock really is, is Celtic President, Celtic Fest President, Alan Cosgrave. Alan, thank you for joining us. Hey, good morning, Sammy. Thanks for having me. How busy are you today? Yeah, pretty busy. So I've obviously got a day job and then St. Patrick's Day, um, you know, with, with Celtic Fest. We've been running the festival since uh, March 10th and it runs till the 20th. But uh, we've had lots of great activities and, and really great interest. We went virtual for the first time this year, obviously, in light of COVID. But it's really expanded our, our reach and we've uh, had lots of people attend our events from not only across Canada, but across the globe as well. So it's been a, a huge success so far. Okay, so then, Alan, tell us, how did we end up here? What? Who is St. Patrick? Yeah, so St. Patrick, um, he lived during the 5th century, so he's the patron saint of Ireland. He's actually uh, born in Britain originally, and he was kidnapped and brought to Ireland as a slave when he was about 16. Uh, he later escaped, but returned to Ireland and was credited with bringing Christianity to, to Ireland. So originally, this started off as a, a religious uh, holiday. Um, but then, um, really... You know, in in modern day Ireland, to to kind of drive some uh, tourism and and to use the campaign to uh, drive interest in St Patrick's Day. Uh, around the early nineties, the Irish government really went on this this big campaign. You know, a lot of people they'll associate St Patrick's Day with with you know having a good time and a few drinks. But uh, a little unknown fact, I would say, up until the nineteen seventies, in Irish law, pubs are actually mandated to be closed on March seventeenth. So what? it's really yeah. So it's 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 only really been in the last you know couple of of. of of decades and it's really taken off and becoming this fun-filled kind of family event so it's uh it's really taken off and it's obviously embraced over the world another kind of interesting fact is the first saint patrick's day parade took place in florida in 1601 and it was organized by a spanish colony um that was led by an irish vicar uh ricardo artur so it's uh it's definitely grasped the, the world and I think it's uh, it's a day that everybody is, is proud to, to uh, celebrate their Irish heritage whether uh, how big or small that may be Oh they certainly do. Now we were talking about the shamrock yesterday here at work and debating like is a four leaf clover still a shamrock? Is only a three leaf clover a shamrock? Like what is the exact definition here? Yeah, so four leaf is obviously uh, the more Americanized version. So again the, the three leaf shamrock comes back to Christianity and kind of um, you know the... Of course. The, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Um, so, yeah, in Irish custom, again, the shamrock's going to become one of those things where we say on St. Patrick's Day, we'll we'll drown the shamrock. So, again, we're kind of moving further away from, I guess, the origin of St. Patrick, which was uh, Christianity and, 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 and a religious tone to more of a, a celebratory tone. But, yeah, the shamrock is, again, something that associated quite a lot with Ireland and you'll see uh, lots of, of Irish pubs if you visit them today in the lower mainland for a pint of Guinness they'll usually uh, have a little shamrock 
put into the, the, yes, the top of the, the Guinness as well, just for some extra effect. Okay, so then, Alan, taking into account all of the history about St. Patrick's Day, what, what, what would you consider to be the, the proper way to celebrate this day? Yeah, I think really for, for myself and I think for lots of, of, of people who have Irish heritage, it's really just a, a celebration with your family and making it a, a fun day event. Uh, it, it, with it kind of having the religious links as well, previously St. Patrick's Day always falls within the middle of Lent where, you know, a number of, of Christians will kind of fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's changed now to, you know, I know in our household the kids are off kind of sweets and and. and they kind of have their screen time reduced down and stuff like that. So today they'll get to have some extra candies and, and things like that. And we'll we'll teach them a little bit about, you know, my Irish heritage. My, my wife is uh, Canadian, but, you know, her dad is Irish. So we've got strong Irish roots on our side and we'll have a little bit of fun that way. But the thing that I really love about St. Patrick's Day is just the different communities that embrace it. Um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to bring the parade back next year um, once COVID restrictions are lifted. But when we used to have the parade downtown Vancouver, you had all different types of nationalities yeah. coming and embracing it. Now, it was really just terrific to see everybody kind of don their green for the day and, and celebrate, uh, you know, a little bit of Irish culture. Well, listen, enjoy it this year and we'll enjoy it even more next year, Alan. Thanks for your time. Absolutely. This is Mornings with Simi announcement from the provincial government. They've announced a significant increase in income and disability assistance, one of the largest BC has ever had at one time. It is projected to cost about $400 million a year going forward, but it could make quite a difference in the lives of people who really need this money. So let's talk about where it's going and what it means for people who are living below that poverty line in our communities. Joining us now is Vivica Ellis, a community organizer with the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. Vivica, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So how much of an increase are we talking about here? Well, um, as we know, uh, back in March in the, in the, when the pandemic was rolling out, um, our government did make the, the right decision to raise the, the rates with a supplemental benefit of $300. Um, that was, was later uh, clawed back by 150 um, with a planned clawback of the other 150, and now we have this announcement um, of 175 as a permanent raise um, to the disability and assistance rates. So there really has been, uh, over the course of the pandemic, uh, quite a flip-flop um, on, on uh, the importance of raising the rates, but we are very glad and happy and relieved to see that government has landed with at least um, this raise at this time. Okay, so that means $175 a month more for people who are on uh, disability assistance. Is this, And that's a big increase for BC, but the question is, d- does it bring us up? Does it, does, it, does it really make a difference in people's lives? Well, that really is the question. So the $170 raise applies to everybody who's on regular income assistance and disability assistance. Um, which includes about you know forty nine thousand uh, forty nine thousand kids in, in British Columbia, but the reality is, to me, you know, when we we calculated based on the three hundred dollar supplement, even with the three the full three hundred supplement, everybody on income and disability assistance was still about fifty percent below the the poverty line uh, that we use here in British Columbia. So. Um, a $175 raise brings brings everybody up a little bit more. We know it impacts, very much impacts food security. We've heard this overwhelmingly from people on income assistance and disability assistance that 
um, throughout the pandemic, they have been able to purchase more of the food that they need. Um, but really, we are still in this province leaving people in great depths of poverty if and when they are accessing our social safety net, which is there for all of us. So we, we are still going to continue to advocate to government to, to continue to raise the rates, to see this as a first necessary uh, crucial step to raising the rates right up to the poverty line. Right. Have, have other provinces done that? Have Has the situation been different elsewhere? Um, other provinces, um, you know, provinces have different kinds of poverty reduction strategies. Um, our legislative targets and timelines are looming. Um, you know, we, we, we did work very hard to lobby government for a full decade to develop a very rigorous poverty reduction strategy for this province that took into account all of the you know, diversity of equity-seeking groups that we have to address homelessness, um, women's poverty, um, youth in care. Um, and, you know, when we secured this plan, we legislated targets and timelines, and we have seen some good measures within our plan. But the reality is we were quite outraged that when we rolled out our poverty reduction strategy in 2018, we didn't raise the rates significantly at that time. If we had done it then, we would not have had so many people in such a very vulnerable situation when the pandemic hit. So, you see, this, this, this is coming late, very late. Um, and as we know, you know, the long-term um, health impacts on people having to live in poverty decade after decade are, are really quite catastrophic. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so I, I suppose what, what I mean to say here is that we have no time to lose. Um, and this, this kind of investment that we're making now is absolutely essential. Um, people need support and they need help. Um, and to leave so many people truly starving below the poverty line is a violation of their, their fundamental human rights. So we're just going to continue to, to pressure government to build on this, this necessary move. Right. Vivica, what are you hearing from people? How are they managing during the pandemic? People who are already struggling, what, is, what kind of a difference has the pandemic made? Well, I have heard a lot from from, from different kinds of um, communities and community members. Um, there's, it's been such an enormous struggle. I mean, you can imagine um, if you're already living below the poverty line or working precariously. Um, for example, it, everything went online for, for quite a period of time. So we had a, I heard from a lot of vulnerable families at home that do not have internet access. They cannot afford internet access. So accessing mental health services, accessing... Uh, school, it, it went online, and that, that left many, many vulnerable families um, struggling. Um, of course, food security. Um, we have a huge situation when everybody in British Columbia was hoarding food, and those who weren't able to hoard, um, you know, couldn't stock up on those cans of tuna. So I think that the, the pandemic has, 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 has exacerbated existing inequalities and inequities. Um, but it's also rolled back very hard fought for and hard won gains, particularly around women's economic security. Um, we know who has been most hardest hit are those precarious workers, predominantly racialized, many people who actually work around the clock and still live below the poverty line. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going to see the impacts of the pandemic for a very long time. Um, but, but one thing I would point out is that Um, we heard so much from community members when government rolled back the 150. So the pandemic is still in full swing. Um, And and, and, and when we rolled out the BC recovery benefit, I think you and I spoke then, um, 
They, they rolled back 150 at that time, and that hurt people. That hurt families. It hurt some of our most vulnerable community members who were truly using that 150 to buy the groceries. Um, so we have to remember the context of this. You know, mm-hmm. government has, has been flip-flopping, um, and, 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 and we need government to take a, a strong and steady, committed approach to um, planned rate increases right up to the, the poverty line with no giving and taking away, giving and taking away. Because you can imagine the, the psychological impact of that on people. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just all of a sudden, as of next month, that's it. You're going to, you, you have so much less and already you're really struggling to put chicken on the table and get some kids, uh, some shoes for, for your child. Um, so, so just all this to say that, that this increase, it is going to have a huge impact on people. Um, and, um, you know, it, it is the right thing to do. And it's, it's an investment in children and families and seniors. Um, they deserve it. Um, we're just sad that it, it didn't come long ago and that people have had to go through this giving and taking away and giving and taking away throughout the pandemic. Oh, Vivica, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it this morning. Well, thanks for having me again, Simi. Lovely to speak to you. Nice to speak to you, too. That's Vivica Ellis, community organizer at the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition, reacting to the news. Provincial government announcing yesterday that they are increasing uh, the income and disability assistance amount uh, by um, about $175 a month for everybody. Uh, But that does kind of bring them up to where they were during the pandemic when they were getting the supplement but for many people, they say, you know what, we are still so far away from hitting that you know, poverty line that there still is a lot of work to be done.